0: You are receiving this transmission. You are reclaiming the faith with Phil Baker on the Fourth Watch Radio Network. Network. Welcome to episode 16 of Reclaiming the Faith, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. I'm your host, Phil Baker. Now let's dig into history. Hey everyone, thank you so much for taking time to listen to Reclaiming the Faith. Episode 16 is the second part of my eye opening four part series on genuine historic revivals with my podcasting partner, BDK of Omega Frequency, who you can find at omegafrequency.com. Well, here in part two, We look at both scripture and history to determine a few things that genuinely precede revival. And this is an awesome episode that you may want to listen to a few times to make sure that you really soak up all that is discussed. Well, if you're blessed by this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you'd take time to leave an honest review on my iTunes channel, Reclaiming the Faith. And also, if you have any questions, please feel free to contact me at my website, reclaimingthefaith.podbean.com, and you can subscribe to this uh, podcast there as well. And you can email me at baker at gmail.com. And in 2016, I wrote a book called New Wineskins and the Simple Words of Christ. You can find this book on Amazon, and if it's a blessing to you, please leave an honest review there. Also, I'm blessed to be a part of Justin Fall's 4th Watch Radio Network, along with BDK of Omega Frequency, who I do a monthly Q&A show with called Ready With an Answer. And you can contact BDK at omegafrequency.com if you have a question about this episode of Revival that you want us to answer on air. So uh, yeah, send them a question there and we'll be sure to answer that on Ready With an Answer. And in addition to our own channels, you can find each of our podcasts at the 4th Watch Radio website or on the 4th Watch Radio podcast. And finally, The early Christian quotes that I use can generally be found on the CD-ROM version of the Anti-Nicene Fathers, and you can purchase your own copy for $5 on the Scroll Publishing website. All right, well, let's get into part two of Reclaiming Revival with BDK. So um, what are a few things that generally precede revival, whether it be like in Scripture, like we could see in Acts. Or, um, or just historically in some of these movements.
1: All right. Well, let's do that. Let's look at it from scripture and let's look at it from um, history because the two won't necessarily contradict each other. Of course. But you'll see different flavors of some things. Right. So let's address this question in basically three ways. First, let's get this out of the way first, because I hear a lot of people say that we will never have revival because things are too apostate. It's way too dark in this world and society right now to have revival. I've heard watchmen stand up and say, we shouldn't even bother praying for America because God's judging America. Well, now they're saying that God's blessing America, but that's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> um, but that's what they used to say, right? They're like, why even bother with all this revival? So they don't believe that we'll ever see a revival again. Well, here's the thing. If everything was going awesome, then there would be no need for revival, right? Right. Dark times, both in the church and the society, have always preceded times of real historical revival. If real historical revival either happened to the children of Israel or happened in the Bible or happened in the book of Acts or happened in Ephesus or happened in the seven churches or happened in Spain when Paul went down there or if it happened in Wales or it happened in Chicago or it happened with uh, Charles Finney or whoever the case may be, if a revival happened, then you can automatically assume that there had to be a reason why it happened. And that's because the church needed to be revived and there needed to be a great awakening. So the fact that we see a lot of evil in society right now, and we see a lot of lukewarmness in the church and things look really, really bad is a sign of one of two things, approaching judgment or revival. It can be either one. Revival is promised to the children of God but it's not guaranteed to the children of God. Let me say that again. Revival is promised in scripture to the children of God, but it's not guaranteed to the children of God. They're conditional okay? promises. It's, it's conditional, right? God's response in revival is to his remnant. That's his response to the remnant doing something. It's his people calling out to him to reveal himself to them and to revive them. The famous passage that everybody knows is Second Chronicles seven fourteen. It says, "If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray, seek my face, turn from my wicked ways, I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sins, and heal their land." Now notice that. What's the condition here? What's the promise? Is it if society gets its act together, blessings will come? If the nation becomes Christian? then my blessing will come. If you vote the right guy in, then my blessings will come. If you take the seven mountains, my blessing will come. If you get a better and bigger church program, my blessings will come. If your mailer looks better than the next guy's mailer, my blessings will come. If your church serves free trade coffee in its lobby versus the slubs down the street who are using Maxwell Instant, my blessing will come. Is that what he's saying? is the onus at all on the unsaved or the unregenerate or the works of man. It's if my people, my people who are in covenant relation with me, who are born again by the power of the Holy spirit, which are called by my name, if they will humble themselves, if they will pray, if they will seek my face and this is key and turn from their wicked ways that 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 is a is a statement that's a given that your church is preaching against sin and is preaching holiness on a consistent basis this this is your church and the people in your church from the top down are doing for fearless moral inventories of their life and they're like even though we're called by his name we're not proud enough to say we have it all figured out We're not proud enough to say that we don't need to pray. No, we need to pray. We need to seek his face. We need to become more holy like he is holy. I'll never be holy enough. God, help me be holy like you're holy. If we do this, then he will hear from heaven. He will forgive their sin. That's revival. Okay. Him hearing from heaven, forgiving their sin is the revival that happens in the church. The healing of the land is the fruit of that. That's the awakening. So that's how that goes. And truth be told, if you want to be really, if want to get down to the nitty gritty and the minutia of this, God has a way of intervening in earth to spur his people into calling out to him in that sort of desperation, contrition, and repentance, which leads us to the second way we're going to address this question, because there are two general ways for God to get his remnant to wake up, to rise up and to call out to him And to repent. So, this speaks to the events that precede revival. He can either break or shake his church to desperation so that he can find himself a broken people who are praying desperately for God to intervene before it gets to a very dangerous point. Um, If you look at this in the Bible, this is called the shock and awe approach that says judgment first begins at the house of the Lord. And if the righteous scarcely survived, then what of the unrighteous? So God can literally shake his church to the point where their lampstand is either going to get removed or they're going to get revived. And that's one way that God can get a church's attention. He can back them literally up into a corner and say, you guys are either going to die here through persecution, through outright troubles, or straight up apostasy or whatever way I'm going to shake you or you're going to take a look around and you're going to be like I am naked, I think I'm rich, but I'm poor. I think I'm well clothed, but I'm naked. Buy of me gold refined in the fire, right? So like that's one way he does it.
0: And the, the Can I jump in way real that, quick? Yeah, of course. Um man, I think that's like right on point, dude. Um like you were you were saying in in kind of the intro that the church has to take this like fearless moral inventory of themselves to really be able to see themselves, how God sees them. Right. And, and you just quoted revelation three, which is God looking at the church. If we believe Jesus is God, which we should, right. (laughs) Whoever's Mm -hmm. listening to this, you know, so Jesus is looking at the church of Laodicea and it's interesting because the church does not have a correct view of themselves. Like, they're, they are they are self-deceived. And it's interesting that, like, several of the churches in Revelation, in, in Revelation 2 and 3, are most likely, I mean, they're self-deceived. The view that they have of themselves is not what God sees. So, like, in Laodicea, you know, they're like, oh, we're rich, we're wealthy, we don't need anything. But really, God's like, no... That's, that's not it guys. You know, you're wretched, you're miserable, you're poor, you're poor, you're blind and you're naked. So I advise you to come to me so that you become rich, you know, come to me so that you can have your eyes healed, all these things. And you may clothe yourself, all this stuff. And he's not even in the, in the church, you know, the whole behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone comes and hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him. I mean, that's specifically written, as I read it, to the church at Laodicea. Yeah. So, like, that church is so unbelievably deceived, self-deceived. They're having church every week, and Jesus isn't even a part of it, you know? And they they probably have great programs, and Jesus isn't even inside. He's, He's not giving, like, a... It's not like a plan of salvation to an unbeliever.
1: He's not taking an altar call. Right. He's rebuking them. Right. Big time.
0: Yeah. This is a plea for revival for them. You know, if there ever well, was I, one. Go ahead. Yeah.
1: Can, can I take it one step further? Yeah, go The with. reason that these people didn't see themselves properly is because they had a misinformed vision of Jesus. Right. And so if do you we. you look at the, yeah. And if you look at the seven churches, right? These were seven historical churches. I'm not a dispensationalist, but um, these seven churches were dealing with seven legitimate things going on in each one of their churches. And it was affecting because they were in close proximity to each other. They were affecting other churches. They were affecting themselves. Um, two of the churches got good. Reports, right. but what Jesus is basically doing, if you look, all the letters follow a pattern. Jesus comes up and he says something about himself. He says, like, this is who I am. I'm either the living witness or I'm the one who holds the seven churches in my hand, or I'm the faithful and true witness, I'm the one who has the two-edged sword in my mouth. He he says all these things and he proclaims who he is. And then he tells the church what they're doing good. Basically, he's saying, you know, if I was in your town, if I was still alive, if I never left the earth, these are the sort of things that I would be all about. I would be about helping the poor like you guys help the poor. I would be about exposing these false prophets like you expose these false prophets. But then he takes the churches to task for tolerating things that Jesus would never tolerate. Hmm. He's like, I wouldn't tolerate that, that, that Jezebel. You shouldn't tolerate that Jezebel. I wouldn't tolerate the Nicolaitans but you tolerate the Nicolaitans. Jesus is drawing a line of demarcation because he, what does he call us to be? So the whole purpose of us being ambassadors is to thoroughly be accurate representations of Christ. Um, and that's the purpose of revival, right? It's to get this junk out of our lives. It's to get us to see Jesus for real, to see who he really is. And then for the Holy spirit to reveal that to us And then for us to say, well, are we living up to that, that high calling in Jesus? And if not, then Holy Spirit, grant me the power to do that. Baptize me anew and afresh. Empower me to be more like Christ and less like myself. Help me take my thoughts captive. Help me do the things that I have to do to be alive to Christ and dead to myself so that the world can see. The one thing that they need to see, the one thing that they deserve to see, which is the Father's love made manifest through the
0: person of Jesus Christ, through a witness, through the church. Amen. So uh, just kind of winding down on that first question, um, what part do you see prayer playing in uh, helping a church have that aha moment where they come to grips with? with how deeply they have offended the spirit of grace, you know, how how their spirit of holiness, you know, how, how far they have fallen short. Uh, um,
1: it's tricky because on our own, um, even saved people have a tendency to not go all in until the two minute warning strikes. Right. Hmm. So like to really answer that question Let me just finish, um, talking about the two other ways that God throws that two minute warning up because when you see it, you'll see how prayer is the fulcrum point, the linchpin to all of this. Okay. And I'm going to take no credit for this next part. This is something that Keith Green had written down. And I read when I was probably like 18 or 19. Um, Keith Green, if you don't know, was a singer in the Jesus movement. Um, he's saying, Lord, you're beautiful. If you listen to his albums, they're pretty much revival albums. Right. Yeah. And that's because he was a disciple of Leonard Ravenhill and David Wilkerson. And, um, I love Keith green. He's one of my favorite artists. Um, when I first got saved, a youth pastor said, you're going to dig this. Um, and he's like, you're going to really, this is going to change your world, man. And I'm like, okay, uh, cause I didn't even know about the whole Christian music scene. Like I was trying to figure out who this Petra was that this youth pastor was wearing around on his t-shirt. Right. And uh, he's like, this may not be your style of music, but he put, so you want to go back in Egypt in my hand in a cassette tape. I put it in my walkman and I was broken. I listened to that thing till I wore that thing out. And then the second thing that he put in my hands along with this uh, tape was like 10 of Keith Green's newsletters from the late seventies. So like he would put out like a three or four page newsletter once a month talking about what was going on in his ministry, what was going on in the Jesus movement. And then he would always end it with a call to revival. And then always an article from either David Wilkerson or Leonard Ravenhill, who would guest spot, right. Hmm. An article every month for his, his newsletters. And that was the first time I've ever heard of Leonard Ravenhill and David Wilkerson. said. And so like, that was my breadcrumb trail to those guys. And then I started reading those guys and I was like, oh man, I don't know anything about being saved, man. (laughs) And then like, so these, 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 these letters, they're full of radical revival articles and Keith Green basically said that these biblical events preceded revival when God was trying to judge us or get our attention. So this is still part of that shock and awe thing. God would judge an economy to bankrupt us, to get us to the point where we don't trust money, or he would judge the ecology. He would send natural disasters and depressions to get at our attention, or he would send invading armies. Now that's, that's the biblical way that he dealt with the children of Israel. Right. And that would be ways that he would try to get our attention to kind of bring us to a place of brokenness or prayer. But then there's other times, and this is the preferable method. This is the method that, that I think he prefers. It's, it's, a, it's a better method where he finds just a very small core group of people who are deeply troubled and pained by the lukewarm state of the church. And they cry out for mercy and deep brokenness and intercession. So like we were talking about the Welsh revival of 1904, but the events that preceded it are amazing and not well known because it began in a very unlikely place. And when I tell you what this unlikely place is, your jaw is going to hit the ground because it's the last place you would ever expect a revival to proceed from. It happened amongst prisoners of war held captives in concentration camps halfway across the world. That's what preceded the Welsh Revival of 1904. The Boer War of South Africa of 1902 pitted South Africa against the British. The prisoners of war were held on the Bermuda Island, a British island colony off the southeastern coast of the United States. And in a setting of torture, brokenness, and solitary confinement from days at a time forced fasting, the prisoner of war revival As it came to be known, happened amongst the prisoners. And it was characterized by a quote unquote extraordinary prayer, faithful preaching, conviction of sin, confession, and repentance with lasting conversions, and hundreds of enlistments for missionary service once the war kind of ended and these guys got to go home. Think about that for a moment. Now, follow me on this picture. When these prisoners returned to their homeland, these brokenhearted prisoners who spent days in solitary confinement of forced fasting and prayer, these guys saw God move in the most insane, vile conditions. And they were like, yeah, we get to go home. Thank God we'll get to go back home to a church where we're going to be loved and we're going to be accepted and we're going to be able to share our faith. And then when they returned, the church was lukewarm. The church was in a backslidden state. It was prayerless. There were no prayer meetings and crime was unchecked. The coal miners were deviants and foul mouthed hooligans and whorehouses and bars and dance halls were packed and the churches were barely attended. And when they looked at all these people who say that they were free, they're like, these guys are bound worse than we were. So, what did they do? They started holding prayer meetings in cellars and in basements, cold places like their prisoner of war camp. And from these prayer meetings came a deep hunger in a young man named Evan Roberts to see God visit Wales. Amazing, right? Hmm. In 1949, when revival came to the Hebrides Islands off the coast of Scotland, not a church could boast of having a single young person attending the Sunday services. Think about that. Not a single young person attending Sunday services. Instead, the youth of Scotland flocked to the dance halls, the picture shows and the drinking houses along with public drunkenness and outright prostitution. Two broken ladies had enough became grieved. That's right. Two Two ladies, Peggy Smith, an 84-year-old blind woman in bad health, was a prayer warrior. And her sister, Christine, who had severe arthritis that left her in pain most of the time, they couldn't attend church. They were no longer able to attend the services in the parish, a bravis. But these two or three were gathered in the mighty name of Jesus. And in their humble cottage outside of town, it became a sanctuary, a prayer for revival. They had a barn out back. And as the two sisters prayed together, blind Peggy had a legitimate vision of the churches crowded once again with youth. And when that happened, she sent for her minister. Now, the Reverend James Murray McKay visited the two shut-ins and listened intently to the account of the vision. And he was startled because his own wife had a similar dream only a few weeks earlier And neither the pastor nor his wife told anyone of the dream, but Peggy's vision confirmed it in the mouth of two or three witnesses. And the pastor knew what he had to do next. Even though his congregation was very small, they were very faithful. And he called his leaders and whoever else would come out to that barn for prayer. For three months, they prayed two nights each week among bales of straw in a local barn. They asked God to send revival. Then it seemed like nothing was happening. They were spinning their gears. They were spinning their wheels. And after several months of these prayer meetings, a young deacon began reading something very simple from the scripture. And he said this, who may ascend unto the hill of the Lord, who may stand in his holy place. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. He was reading from Psalms 24 verses three through four. He paused, he closed his Bible and began to speak. And he said something super radical and and probably very disrespectful. He says, It seems to me so much humbug to be waiting and to be praying when we ourselves are not rightly related to God. And lifting his hands towards heaven, he prayed, Oh God, are my hands clean? Is my heart pure? This was actually the start of the revival because this is when God showed up amongst that group of people. And turn them into a zealous prayer warrior army. So to answer your question, the 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 turning point wasn't so much um, God save all these people out there. It was, God are my hands clean. Is my heart pure? Am I the reason that there's not scarcely a young person in this church? Am I a bad witness? Am I the reason that people are drunk and going to hell? Do I condone sin? Do I do this? Do I do that? And when this young man started confessing his sin as part of the intercession process, that's when God showed up. Right? And because God showed up in revival, this led them to calling Duncan Campbell, who was a Scottish evangelist, to come and to bring an awakening to the country to the community in the Hebrides Islands. And then finally, we have the Layman's Revival of 1857 through 1861. And this one's super interesting because there are so many parallels to today's situation that if you have an ear to hear and eyes to see, you're going to catch this immediately. And if there was ever a case to say, hmm, God showed up in a very similar situation, maybe he'll show up again. And he showed up in kind of a very unique way that might make a lot of church leaders very uncomfortable but he showed up unmistakably. And this is an amazing story. So like there were two great awakenings in the 1830s and the 1840s. Um, And this led many evangelical Christians to believe that the kingdom of God was about to be established on earth by means of those revivals itself. It was kind of like a forerunner to the seven mountain mandate, right? They were like, Ooh, we've had these two great awakenings in the last two decades. That means God is going to make everything good. Revivals on the upswing, the kingdom of God is going to be established on earth. And in light of this expectation, a Baptist layman gained a large following amongst evangelical ministers and congregations alike. His name was Captain William Miller. And he announced that Jesus would return on April 23rd, 1843. And his conclusions were based on his own personal study of the prophetic scripture, which focused on mystical meanings of the numbers found in Daniel and revelation and signs in the heavens and in the moons. Not making that up. Followers of Miller were so convinced that many gave away their property and prepared a special Ascension robes for the rapturous occasion. When April 24th came without incident, Miller concluded that the return of the Lord and the date that he had was wrong because he was basing it off the wrong Jewish year and the wrong Jewish calendar. Of course, now, the same song, different different decade, right? Different yeah. year. Rather than at its beginning, he set a new date of March twenty second, eighteen forty four. Once again, of course, the date arrived, the date passed without incidents, and then he began to set a series of other dates, all of which proved, of course, to be untrue. Now his extra biblical theology and numero numerology, numer- uh, his numerology. Numerology. Yep. All those shenanigans had a (laughs) damaging effect on the credibility of Christianity throughout American society. Basically, people were laughing at these prophetic shenanigans. But while that was going on, suddenly an economic boom took place. The U.S. won the Mexican-American War of 1845. And soon after that, the discovery of gold happened in California in 1849. So now we have like a booming economy. We have national pride because we were winners. We're a nation of winners, Phil. We're winners. It's all about winning. Winning. Then in Canada, yeah, then in Canada, the war of 1812 got settled followed by the rebellion of 1837, and this kind of had the lingering effect. We won the Mexican-American War, but then we had the other side of the border, which was Canada, and there was a heightened tension between Americans and Canadians, who remained loyal British subjects, which led to, of all things, a border war. Build which a led wall to a <laughs> Yeah, they could have, they probably would have. But see, this led to a cocktail of compromise, bro, because the economic prosperity distracted people from their greater spiritual needs and Miller's highly publicized failures led to a significant decline in church attendance. And on top of that, the clergy began to engage in politics. They began to discriminate against the immigrants from Canada and treated them differently in the fellowship of the church. And some would not let them even join American churches. So there was a caste system going on that. And then on top of that, the sermons on national pride and patriotism because of the war and because God was blessing them because he allowed them to find gold, replaced biblical preaching from the clergy and the ministers.
0: Sounds about right. Crazy, right? (laughs) So what did God do? (laughs) He bypassed
1: the corrupt church leaders and sought out lay people. Yeah. In 1857, Jeremiah Lamphere, a Dutch Reformed home missionary, began a lay prayer meeting in the Fulton Street Church of New York, which began with only six people in attendance. But this was a movement of lay people who simply prayed. And in response, God began to show up convict of sin, draw people to these prayer meetings. He worked in their lives and their community in remarkable ways. And they actually prayed for God to visit the church and for God to somehow wake the church up and for God to somehow strip them of all this pride that was replacing the gospel in their sermons. I mean, that was their prayer. A few months later in 1857, a financial panic hit like in the midst of all this on a dime, It stopped. For some mysterious reason or some answer to prayer, the banks failed. The railroads were bankrupted, factories closed and unemployment increased. And then suddenly many Christians realized, you know what? Maybe we should be praying. This is a dire situation. So people flooded into the prayer meetings left and right. Churches were packed. They didn't care if you were from Canada or America or Mexico. Just come in here and pray that God would help us, that God would revive us. Because obviously the revivals of the 1930s and 40s didn't do the trick. It's up to us to lay hold of the promises of God for ourselves. And this wasn't led by pastors or priests, but it was led by lay people. And do you want to know who the most famous recognizable lay leader to come out of these prayer meetings was? Hmm. D.L. Moody. Nice. In 1859, he was a simple Chicago shoe salesman. He also served as the head of the Illinois Sunday School Association They had an annual meeting in Springfield, Illinois, about Sunday school and and how lay people were working in the Sunday school because that was like lay ministry. And D.L. Moody, who came from one of these prayer meetings, said, you know what? This formal meeting here is dead too. And we're going to shut this meeting down. We're just going to pray until God meets us. Those assembled prayed all night. Again, the next morning, Moody canceled the meeting until God visited them. That prayer meeting became known as the Illinois band and it represented a remarkable group of laymen whose goal was to bring Christ to the world. So that's who God can use. He can use blind people, people with arthritis, a group of six people, six laymen in a house. He can use prisoners of war in solitary confinement He chooses the most unlikely people and bypasses all the programs, all the pride, and and I'm not trying to rip on pastors because there are pastors out there that have tremendous hearts for God, and there are pastors that God wants to use legitimately as shepherds of their congregation to lead them in true biblical revival, but a lot of times, if we get caught up in all of these crazy things that are going on, God will just look for the remnant, Cause there's always going to be somebody praying in a barn and there's always going to be some old person who can't get out of their chair, but, but loves to, to speak to their father and just praise and praise and praise. There's always going to be someone who has a hunger and a heart for God. And God has a way of kind of seeking those people out in dire circumstances and using them tremendously and mighty. So that's some of the things that precede true biblical revival.
2: This one